where the soul of man never dies. You know, that song and the others that we sang before it certainly have such messages of power and majesty, compelling messages that not only encourage our spirits, but also present to us incredible truths in the Word of God. It is the case tonight, as you can see on the wall that's behind me, we'll be looking somewhat at a pair of concepts that are closely related, at least in one regard. But these concepts can often cause shipwreck for the faith of some. And tonight, as we look a little bit at those possibilities, I'd like to share with you some basic Bible and science concepts. As we do that, I might say this introductory slide will be one that at least gets us going in the following consideration. There really is no secret to the importance which technology has in our modern society. We have come to rely on it. From cell phones to the various intricacies of our automobiles to the features that sometimes take place even in our homes and places of stay. Many elements in the workplace are in fact also governed by computers and other kinds of technology that go with it. But it is in that light with those developments, those discoveries, those inventions, that there has come to be such a respect for the scientific field and endeavors that go with it that it probably is safe to say that there are few, if any, things that would rise higher than science as those opportunities to directly cause trouble for the faith of some. After all, science seems to give one message, a message that's rather different than the Bible, a message that's rather different from the matters concerning God and the Son and the Spirit, but yet it's a message that is so often accepted. Tonight, as we think about Bible concepts and science concepts as well, let's close that slide like this. Whether it be from astronomy all the way to zoology, from A to Z, you and I can name many sciences that would especially be mentioned at least in a range like that. But what we're going to do tonight is, again, not look at the particulars of any one of them, but ask about the overarching themes, those matters that must be a part of our understanding so that you and I can properly respond to that which the Word of God has to say. As a case in point, could I start with this slide? Let's take care of some thoughts about the Word of God, the Bible, first. There are many different views which themselves can well be seen in light of what men may say about the Bible. There are those, for example, who do not look upon the Word of God as that. They see it rather differently than that. They consider it as a book of stories or fables or well-concocted imaginations of men. But they do not consider it as the Word of God. I thought I'd share with you some quotes just to let them speak for themselves. It's not as if you and I might directly say that that's what they say, but would you listen to the, this pair of paragraphs? This gentleman is named... I'm sorry, I had his name on the front page, but I must have printed that one. My mistake on that part. The story of Noah's Ark is classic mythology. It's not even Hebrew mythology. The men who wrote the Bible plagiarized it from a Mesopotamian story. This mythological story claims that rainbows didn't exist until God flooded the world because He was angry at people for behaving how they are designed to behave. As is typical for writers of mythology, 
They took a natural phenomenon they didn't understand, in this case the rainbow, and created a fantastical story about how a supernatural deity added the phenomenon to the design of the universe. In reality, this writer says, there was never a flood that destroyed the world. Two of every animal didn't fit on a boat for 40 days, and rainbows existed long before the invention of the Bible. Now here's one writer, one person, and no doubt such writings may well have influenced the thinking of many, but it's easy to appreciate the thrust the gentleman's making. The Bible is a concoction of stories. In fact, it's mythology, and it's not even good mythology at that, he says. The same person made this statement too. How could a human being possibly witness a conversation between God and Satan as is supposed to have happened in the book of Job? It's impossible, he writes. Therefore, the story must have been made up. Also, in the story of Job, God and Satan make a petty bet over how much abuse Job would accept and still love his abuser. The story of Job is a fairy tale that glorifies battered person syndrome and was written by an abusive human male, not the all-loving, all-perfect creator of the universe. And so, as one by one, he calls into question the book of Job and the book of Genesis. We're beginning to get a feeling this gentleman considers the Bible to be merely a set of human stories that someone made up in order to perhaps make a localized point in answer to some issue. Let's try another one. Same author. This one in relates to one of the Ten Commandments. This is the Tenth Commandment in the famous Ten Commandments. It approves of slavery and places women in a list of property less valuable than a house, but more valuable than a donkey. The all-perfect, all-loving creator of humanity would never write a rule like this. Only a primitive human being trying to justify their pre-existing cultural standards would ever write a law as shameful as this. I think I've about heard enough. But you get the idea. This gentleman, one by one, proceeds to attempt to discredit, to call into question the very character of this book you and I cherish so highly. He claims that humans wrote it and they were not motivated by an all-loving God to have, wrote, to have written what they did. They were motivated by their personal speculations approving what they saw to be notable in their modern life for that time. And it's no more than that. There are some other comments that the gentleman has written, but I'll stop our reading at that point. But what you and I might wish to do is that kind of thinking is not all that uncommon. There are those who think this book is nothing that's any higher than some ancient other writings, such as the Homer, I'm sorry, the Iliad that was written by Homer, or the features characteristic of some other ancient documents of some kind that men wrote. No better than Aesop's fables, no better than some other ancient writings, and in some sense they would even see this book as less authoritative than those things. But what you and I would wish to do, at least briefly on that slide, is note this. What does this book say about itself? We aren't interested so much in what men may say about it. But what about the evidence of what it proclaims for itself? I have called to your attention several passages. Let's begin with that 2 Samuel 23-2 text. There, in an ancient day, this gentleman Samuel... I'm sorry, David himself would write the mar marvelous words that you and I now note. 
the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. And thus as David made that exclamation, he pointed out that it was the Spirit of God speaking through him, and that those words that were employed were the very ones that were the words from God. It was not David's words. If I could, in fact, emphasize that truth, you and I might notice if it were David's words but God's thoughts, then it listed or still is not literally the Word of God. It'd be the Word of David. But yet it was the words of God that David had the privilege of presenting. As you look at that next passage following it, Jeremiah chapter 1, in the opening stanza of the book of Jeremiah, here that notable prophet was rather directly appointed in verses 7 and 9 and he was affirmed and told the following, that that which he would say, that that which he would present was to be in accordance to the things of God. But then that point was highlighted. Two verses later in verse number 9, wherein the thought was presented that he was speaking the word of God. And so one more time, it's not as if Jeremiah was proclaiming his speculation or his opinion. He was asserting that which was the Word of God revealed to him by, of course, the Spirit that he was in fact to present. The following ones on that same piece of paper, that same slide, take us right into the New Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The nature of the Word of God. Notice there it says all Scripture, reminding us that there are writings. The original Greek word really has that significance attached to it. There are writings which are distinct from other writings. Writings of men are not equivalent to the writing of God. Writings of men do not stand on equal ground with regard to the Word of God. And yet all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It literally is God-breathed. It is God-presented. It is that which He has directly brought before us. In so doing that, that word occupies the opportunity for rebuke, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. You may notice that men's writings are not as all-sufficient that way. Finally, on that same slide, could I invite us to recall the statement in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and following, where there we're reminded that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so this precious Word of God, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 31,102 verses, all of them call to our attention the fact that their author stands above the highest of scholars upon earth because it really is the Word of God. How often do you remember the various times of the Bible wherein the Word of God was reckoned or at least described that way. It may well be that Ezekiel is near the top of the list. Son of man, go speak with my word unto them. Ezekiel 3, verses 3 and following. And Jeremiah was given similar instruction like that as well. But you'll notice that it was reckoned and described as the Word of God. It is for that reason we'll close that slide like this. The Word of God is truth. Psalm 119, verse 142. And our Lord exclaimed it like this, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. To borrow the words of that famous prayer in John 17, verse 17. 
to speak then about the truth of the Lord, you and I might now appreciate that this book, the exquisite Bible, the holy volume, is in fact the Word of God. But that stands in dramatic contrast to what's on this next slide. Because what we're about to do is to use some of those thoughts we just noted, perhaps form a little bit more in light of a bedrock for their consideration, and then move into a consideration of science. Let's do that like this. The Word of God has time and again been found to be true. Although men may well not have thought it was at the time, now, given the historical character of the Bible, meaning that it was written in a particular age of time to individuals that were living on earth, that means the Word of God has as its backdrop actual people living on the planet, and they were living in actual circumstances which could be addressed. And so it was. And by the way, that offers a tremendous opportunity to cross-check the Bible. Here's but one example. For a number of centuries, it was considered by those who were learned that the Old Testament in particular was an error with regard to a reference to a king named Belshazzar. Now, you and I read about him in the book of Daniel. In fact, he's mentioned more than once, and several particulars of his reign are noted. And yet, men turned out to be wrong. Because interestingly enough, in 1853, the archaeologist in fact, discovered a particular matter which I invited you to note on that slide. And they discovered a piece, a particular material that had inscribed on it the very name of the one who scholars thought didn't exist or who at least was questioned. And suddenly, suddenly it was then realized that the Word of God had been correct. It was at the right time, in regard to the right country, in regard to the right consideration of error. And the Word of God turned out to be correct. That's but one example of others that might be mentioned. But isn't it a refreshing and comforting thing to notice that in this instance, whereas the scholars questioned and doubted, and the scholars thought for sure that here was a mistake, and therefore if they had found one mistake, how many others would be there? And suddenly, with that one discovery, that was put to rest entirely. It might be of interest to notice as you close that slide that you and I thus must take the Word of God as the absolute and final authority. It is authoritative, and it is the standard by which contents of rightness are to be found. As you and I close that slide, let's be quick to observe. The Bible is indeed a specially presented book from the God of heaven. It tells us all that we need to know in order to get to heaven. But you and I would be quick to note, the Bible is not a science textbook. We wouldn't be able to read in this book how to build a nuclear power plant. That's understandable. We're not going to find in this book how to fix a particular V8 engine. That's not the reason why this book was presented. But in any case, when it does make statements that might have bearing on any particular field of endeavor, be it history, be it science, be it mathematics or politics, or be it astronomy or meteorology, it is always to be found that those particular statements are in fact recognized ultimately to be correct. There might be many things that could be said about that. 
And it's kind of amazing to consider the scientific foreknowledge found in the Bible. That won't be the thrust of the, uh, the rest of our lesson this evening. But it certainly now leads me to invite you to consider somewhat about science. I've chosen to make a few comments, many of which likely are rather easily understood because they are a part of the society in which we live. The word science comes from an original Latin word that means to know. The word is scientia, to know or to have knowledge of. And quite often that word has come to describe in a very complete way a process for acquiring knowledge. We've all heard about the scientific method in which a hypothesis is formed, experiments are done, data are collected, appreciations about that data are made, analysis if you will, and that's used to either confirm or deny or modify the hypothesis. And if enough hypothesis is confirmed, that might well rise to a scientific law. And one by one, as you think about the way in which that process has moved forward, you and I know that today there are many things we enjoy that are a part of scientific discovery. Microwaves, electricity, various features, again, prompted by various developments that came about by way of scientific discovery. It would be a rather amazing thing to begin to start listing some of these. But I think the brief list I just made is probably enough. And all of us are no doubt thankful for the progress and the inventions that science have made. But by that same token, notice what that has often meant for the realm of science and for those who are scientists. Quite often they are lifted and placed upon a pedestal as if science cannot be wrong as if science is simply this glorified approach to acquire knowledge about what is right and true. And all the while, we seemingly perceive scientists as these individuals in white coats who are not motivated by bias or prejudice or anything other than a mere desire to find the truth. Let me be quick to say that that's going much too far. Science, too, is such that even those that are scientists can approach a given issue with their own prejudices and with their own biases, and they may use that to interpret the data in a way that would benefit or be in their direction. So much so that on that slide, I ask you to at least contemplate it this way. Science has come to occupy such a place of tremendous and high regard. And sometimes those who once were a person of faith are such that that faith is now destroyed because someone says, science says this, and scientists have presented this. And you and I know well that sometimes that which scientists have said is not in agreement with and not consistent with the Word of God. One of the realms in which that's so evident is, of course, the story of origins. Where did man come from? With regard to evolution, organic evolution, prompted by Charles Darwin and those of that camp, you and I realize that what is proclaimed in that sense is often put in language like this. Evolution is a fact. There are many books that stated exactly that way. 
It's a fact that's not to be questioned and it's not to be doubted. In fact, they often make statements like the evidence in favor of it is so overwhelming that the only ones that would question it are stupid, insane, ignorant, or wicked, one or the other. Now, you and I realize then that someone who has a Ph.D. or two and who is so highly regarded and who is sought after for his comments and his public notoriety, and yet he comes forward as confident as that. It's easy to imagine how a student sitting in one of his classes might well be led to start to wonder, well, maybe he's right. And although that youngster may well have grown up in a place in which the Bible was highly regarded, Maybe that person comes to question, to doubt, and finally to fully recognize the fact that in his or her own mind it is this speaker that's actually the one that's right. And it's not only those that might sit in classrooms, for it's also true that the news media is by and large overwhelmingly in favor of the kind of presentation that is not consistent with the book you hold in your lap. Our news media those who present that on television or the internet or otherwise, it in so many ways is motivated by, and often the headlines proclaim that which is not consistent with the Word of God, be it by way of lifestyle, be it by way of trying to discredit this book in any way possible. That includes by way of science. In fact, isn't it the case that every time some scientist comes along with something, that seems to wage warfare against the Bible, it will quite likely occupy a place of front-page consideration. But the very time that that's discredited, and it's no longer a matter to their benefit, you'll never hear another word about it. You'll not hear any apologies. You'll not hear any rebuttals. You'll not hear anything. That topic will just fade off into history, and they'll never make mention of that anymore. You see, the Bible is not popular in the mind of many. I know that's true for many scientists. Not all, mind you, but at least many. And as you come near the bottom of that slide with me, it might certainly be fair to make these final comments, at least on that slide. There are many specialized areas in science. Some of them do not bear a strong relationship, directly at least, to the features connected to the Bible. But there are others, of course, that are. On this next slide, as we develop that somewhat further, let's cast a spotlight upon this controversy that at least continues to be a raging one as it relates to the Bible on the one hand and the matters proclaimed in science on the other. That raging debate perhaps centers on things like evolution, which you and I have just spoken of a moment ago. Biology is a field, thus, which is so often a fertile ground wherein things antagonistic to the Bible can be shown and presented. I might be quick to say that often it's done with a, a statement that here's the evidence for that. You may have even read articles or seen presentations where someone who is a biologist or a scientist will otherwise list what they consider evidence in favor of evolution. Now, clearly, they're presenting a side of it which they wish to share. It has been my observation that there's another side to that consideration. 
there are other elements that ought to be noted as well. And when those others are fairly considered, suddenly the strength of the argument in favor of evolution is crushed. It in fact disappears. And there is a far, far more logical and better explanation for the origin of man than that. It's found to be consistent with the lovely presentation found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In connection to all of that, I find it interesting on the, about the middle part of that slide that one of the things about science I mentioned earlier is that it is prompted by this consideration of experimentation and observation and testability. That is to say, something which can be tested. Have you ever thought about the fact that the origin question is not one that's open to being tested in a laboratory? It's not as though we can go in the lab and have a little evolution or lack thereof take place and see whether that's right or not. That origin happened one time. We cannot go and test evolution that way. And by the way, we can't test creation that way either. But what we can do is test the aftermath of it and look at the evidence that we appreciate and observe today and see which one of those models better describes that which we observe today. And whether it be in physics or geology or biology or astronomy or any number of other fields of endeavor, you and I can find matters which are not open to debate. Experimentation shows us exactly the way it is. And we just have to ask, which one of these models better explains it? Which one explains it in a more consistent and logically coherent way? And it's found, of course, to be the one that follows from the reading of the Word of God. Knowledge begins first and foremost with a heavy appreciation of this sweet book we call the Bible. And that's true with regard to science. It's true with regard to social interaction. It's true with regard to psychology or psychiatry or sociology. It doesn't matter. The premises found in the Bible will be the ones that are coherently right and the ones that are directed to the accomplishment because God always knows and does what's best. Interestingly enough, just a few verses at the bottom of that slide will at least call us to reflect upon that truth. Brother Colonel read from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And may I invite you to consider it as, as I read it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It starts with the fear of the Lord. That person motivated by something other than the fear of the Lord, that person who wishes to dabble in and pursue that which is antagonistic to the God of heaven, will find that what is generated by it will not be wholesome, and it will not stand fully the test of time. But yet... The understanding that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the onset. It's that which will generate that which follows behind it. You and I furthermore notice in Proverbs 2 verse 6 and Proverbs 22 verse 12, we have similar presentations calling us to appreciate the sweetness of knowledge as it's founded upon the beginning point of the fear of God. I might remind each of us then that as we give thought to pieces of information the human family has presented. Aren't we thankful to be guided with a healthy dose of consideration of the Bible? 
that last text in Hosea 4 verse 1 takes us to a time in the days of ancient Israel wherein knowledge, God specifically said, had reached a point where they no longer were enjoying the fruitful benefits of it. Knowledge was less than it ought to be. Why? Because they had turned their back on the God of heaven. I might pause enough to say that historically, we've seen things like that take place. The human family for a long time was in what we call the Dark Ages. It was a time when scientific advancement was not making much progress. It was a time when various fields of endeavor were languishing beneath a number of matters challenging the human family. And then, and then, the time came that that darkness was taken away. I've often found it terribly intriguing that in many ways the scientific revolution coincided with the unshackling of the Bible. When Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1455 and the Word of God came to be shared and disseminated and Bibles were printed and individuals could have access more readily to this, it wasn't more than a hundred years later that suddenly... And beautifully, the dark ages were gone. And the beautiful power connected to the scientific revolution was now underway. Do you think that's happenstance? Do you think it's accidental? I doubt it. I think it's more of a reminder of the fact that when God is allowed to have say, and when the premises connected to His existence and His being are motivating factors, things move in the direction that's powerful and progressive. You may notice as you close that slide with me then, those benefits might take us to this slide as well. More discussion about this supposed controversy. There are those scientists who are heralded so powerfully. Could I allow us to notice a statement from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24? If I may paraphrase, paraphrase some of what Jeremiah there wrote with God speaking of course through him God said any man any man regardless how otherwise he may appear is a fool if he does not have the knowledge of God and today it would do you and me well to keep in mind that these scholarly people who may well have so many matters of learnedness among the human family if they do not, however, have the great knowledge of God, they are reckoned as a fool. They should ever be a reminder to you and me there is a greater knowledge still, and you and I have it. The knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge of the God of heaven, and the knowledge of what's required to be pleasing in His sight. I would also add to that the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now that reading is much more lengthy in some ways, but if you were to begin reading in verse 21 of that chapter and proceed for about 10 verses, you'll notice that Paul points out that actually Corinth was in a place that was known for its learning. They loved philosophy, and they gave a spotlight to the characteristic things of new matters of knowledge among men. It was in that very context Paul said that they too are foolish if they don't follow the things of, that God has revealed. And you and I today can still be so thankful that we have that knowledge most needful and that knowledge that is the only knowledge that ultimately matters. 
In fact, as you look near the bottom of that slide, you might make this observation with me. As I started the lesson tonight, I made the observation that there are those in the scientific community who really have little regard for the Bible. They do not consider it trustworthy. They do not consider it to be the what's followed because scientists know more. And science has the truth at its disposal. And sometimes we might be given the impression that anybody that believes otherwise is really kind of stupid, at least not learned, not intellectual. I thought I'd list for you some scientists in history, some of the most noteworthy, some of the most well-known scientists of the last several hundred years. I'll just briefly share with you a few things about them, but maybe their names are somewhat familiar to us already. The very mention of the name Robert Boyle, one of the laws of chemistry is named after him. In fact, so highly regarded is it that every chemistry student is taught Boyle's Law. And it's used to describe the behavior of gases. And Robert Boyle was a wonderfully regarded creationist. He believed, you see, in the biblical recognition that goes with Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But following him is Antoine Lavoisier, a Frenchman who is regarded as the father of chemistry. He was a Bible-believing man. Following those two, there's Leonhard Euler, arguably one of the most prolific mathematicians the world has ever known. Wrote literally hundreds of papers in mathematics, and today his name is still held in the highest regard in circles of mathematics. And the man was a Bible believer. So strongly was it that it might be noted, though the fact he was blind, through the latter portions of his life, it did not deter at all his, proli his prolific productivity. Notice the next one, Michael Faraday. What you and I use today and we call electricity was ultimately discovered in many ways by him. He discovered the basic principles of physics that would come to be what you and I today, we call electricity, and a Bible-believing man he was. After Michael Faraday, what about James Maxwell, another physicist who occupies a very high-respected place in the history of physics? All of electromagnetism described by laws which he wrote down, and he was a Bible-believing man. Following him, I ask you to know Gregor Mendel, a well-known geneticist. In fact, he's the father of modern genetics. He, too, believed in the Word of God. One by one is some of the next names. Arthur Compton won the Nobel Prize in physics. Again, a very strong Bible-believing person. Bernhard Riemann, another well-known mathematician. Isaac Newton, maybe you've heard about him. Physicists, of course, hold his name very highly. But I might point out he wrote a commentary on parts of the Bible. Look at that. Here was a man who not only made such great progress in science, but he was also a strongly committed man of the book. Following him, I ask you to notice Charles Towns, the inventor and developer of the laser. He was a strong Bible-believing man. Willard Gibbs, to this day, perhaps the most highly regarded thermodynamicist of them all, and also a very prolific man, who, if memory serves me right, taught at Yale for a long time. 
Carl Gauss, J.J. Thompson, the discovery of the electron, as well as the others I've listed. All of them should remind us. It's not that every scientist, it's not that every scientist is opposed to the Word of God. And you and I can be thankful that the Word of God in its truth and in its directness can help us appreciate that there is thus a significant danger. It would seem to me that Timothy highlighted it, or rather Paul highlighted it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. We are each thus warned about the falsehood of science, falsely so-called. You see, science is such that it's just a reference to knowledge, and there are those in the human family that will present and direct knowledge that's opposed to the Bible. And you and I have to be aware of what that is and always follow and always believe in the Bible over that which men may write. Let's close our lesson then like this. We would all agree that science has its worthwhile observations, and we surely would not disagree with that. But you and I know that the Bible is always accurate, and the Word of God is always right, and it is what you and I must believe absolutely. And even in those moments wherein controversy seems to reign supreme between the Bible and something else, you and I will side with the Bible every time, and we will place our confidence in it. That gentleman who I quoted earlier, his name is Travis Hahn. And so what he wrote is simply not correct. To say that the Bible is just a collection of myths and a collection of made-up stories, that, that's just not what the evidence would support. As we close this lesson tonight, we offer the Lord's invitation. And I hope that this lesson has been a kind of lesson that will encourage our faith, that will motivate us to have a stronger, more dedicated conviction and assurance in light of the Word of God. As always, though, if there might be someone who would wish to respond in a public way to the gospel's invitation, we would always wish to make it an opportune time for that to take place because we wish to be helpful. If you would wish to become a Christian tonight, would you not believe in the Lord and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized? Once you have done that, you can begin your life in Christ and your faith will grow exceedingly if you would allow that to take place. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. If you have known the way of Christ, but maybe as of recently, your faith has begun to wane. Maybe you have allowed the writings of men to take center stage in your thinking rather than the words of the Bible. That's not only a mistake, it's an eternal one. And tonight, if we could aid you, encourage you, assist you, you need to make repentance of that and make confession of error with regard to that and come rushing back to the faithful side of the very one who died for you. Tonight, if we could help in that way, we would be happy to pray on your behalf. If you would make confession of those things and make repentance of them, He will forgive. In light of those things, or merely a desire to pray for anyone that might be in need for other circumstances in life, we wish to be here for you. Brother Joy has chosen a song of invitation tonight. If you would wish to come at this time, we would invite you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.